So I'll never forget, um, I'll never forget the first time I got in, I, I stepped foot in the ocean. I, I don't know how old I was, I don't have a memory of my age, but I just have a very distinct memory of, of walking into the, the, the ocean waters for the first time. I'd been in lakes, I'd been in pools, I think I'd been in a bathtub or two, um, and, and I thought I knew how water, bodies of water worked. And I thought I knew especially how the, the ground underneath the bodies of water worked. I, I had this idea from being in lakes and being in pools and being in bathtubs that, that the ground that you stood on underneath the body of water remained where it is. I had this feeling, this idea, this belief that, that the ground would not move underneath my feet. And I remember going into the water and, and this sensation of the, of, the, of the sand being sucked out from underneath my feet. And, and I remember just panicking. Anybody, maybe nobody has this traumatic experience in your background, but, but, but I remember panicking for a moment like, what? What's, what's happening? How, how, and, and reaching for more ground and, and it all kind of being sucked out from underneath me. And, and I remember running, ultimately getting out of that water just about as fast as I could and running to my, my mom and my dad and saying, what is going on out there? In, in little kid speak. And I remember my parents who are here this morning, welcome mom and dad. You don't have to listen to this on the, online later. You can get it in person. Um, but I remember them doing what any good parent will do when their child announces to them something that is well-known, but the child is discovering it for the first time. They chuckled. They laughed, right? That's what they did. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's called undertow, and you're experiencing a phenomenon that is unique to the ocean floor. And every time I walk into the ocean still and feel that, I remember that. And I remember how traumatic it was in that moment and how important it was for me to discover that this is uh, not a, an unnatural occurrence. And the, the, the deep was not trying to, to, to draw me out into it and never to be returned. I thought about that as I, as I in that story and, and several others actually, as I began to think about preparation and, and sharing of this new series of messages that we're diving into this morning from the books of First and Second Timothy. And we're calling this series Foundations Built to Last. And, and it reminded me that story anyway of really the world in which we live at so many levels that, that we often feel like we're standing on solid ground only to have that ground sort of being sucked out from underneath us. And whether that's relationally or emotionally, very practically in some of the ways that we live our day-to-day -day lives or in particularly in the spiritual realities. And, and first and second Timothy and throughout Scripture, but uniquely in these passages of Scripture that we'll be looking at, we'll be, we'll be seeing some, some beautiful teaching that was, that was shared from the Apostle Paul to some of his young apprentices and to, to Timothy in particular who was and a young leader in the church that was helping him to, to get his footing, to have a foundation that would be 
secure, that he could be standing fast on, that wouldn't be being pulled out from underneath him, but truths that he could rely on, that would lead him forward as a leader in the church, and that would lead the church forward as they continued to establish their footing in the world. So, what are the, what are the places in your own life, even as we begin, that, that feel a little bit unsteady underneath your feet? And let's consider together how these truths of the gospel might allow us to stand with even greater confidence and assurance in who God is and what He wants to do in our lives. So open with me, if you will, to the book of 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy, and we're going to look today at chapter 1 and read together from verses 12 to 17. And uh, it's um, page 1125. Probably not in your Bible, but that's what it is in mine. And let's all stand together as I read this great passage of Scripture from 1 Timothy chapter 1 this morning. At the end, I'll say this is the word of the Lord, and you can say thanks be to God. I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has given me strength to do His work. He considered me trustworthy and appointed me to serve Him, even though I used to blaspheme the name of Christ. In my insolence, I persecuted His people, but God had mercy on me because I did it in ignorance and unbelief. Oh, how generous and gracious our Lord was. He filled me with the faith and love that come from Christ Jesus. This is a trustworthy saying. And everyone should accept it. Read this part with me, would you? Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, and I am the worst of them all. All right, I'll continue. But God had mercy on me so that Christ Jesus could use me as a prime example of His great patience with even the worst sinners. Then others will realize that they too can believe in Him and receive eternal life. All honor and glory to God forever and ever. He is the eternal King, the unseen one who never dies. He alone is God. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can be seated. As we look at these letters, and if you include Titus with them, these are what are known as the pastoral epistles. And uh, just a little tidbit of information for you, as they're very pastoral in terms of the way that Paul is writing to Timothy and to Titus, and they're very pastoral in the sense that they're helping Titus and Timothy in their work as pastors of local congregations. But it's important to, to realize that these are not these are not like the book of Romans or 1st or 2nd Corinthians, these, these larger sort of theological treatises of Paul where he's laying out and establishing some, some very deep theology, theological work. These are letters uh, to particular pastors in particular contexts, and they're dealing with some real life challenges uh, to the integrity of the church and the purity of the gospel message. 
Paul's very concerned about some of the issues here, and he's the, 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 the author of many letters in the New Testament, as many of you are aware, the Apostle Paul, and he's traditionally understood to be the author of these letters here to Timothy and Titus as well. And in particular, he's fighting against some false doctrine in the church, and we'll see that come out through and through. But one of the ways that he fights against this false doctrine is not by necessarily talking about how bad the false doctrine is, while he does that, some of that, but by talking about how true and wonderful and declaring the truths of what real Christian doctrine is all about. He doesn't want to say that's bad, but he wants to say this is good, and this is right, and this is what we are to be all about. He longs for nothing more than to help believers get to the foundations of their faith, to stand firm on what he knows to be true and what they can know to be true as well, and to have a, a, a love that fills their heart, as he says back in verse 5, that comes from a pure heart, a clear conscience, and a genuine faith. And as we see in this passage that we've looked at today, um, the heart of this faith was, for Paul, a holy optimism. A holy optimism that believed in the power of the grace of God to be able to completely forgive a person of their sin and to transform their life from sinner to saint. He held on to this confidence first and foremost because as we read here, he had seen it at work in his own life. He didn't have to look far. He had witnessed this amazing grace firsthand right in his own life. Many of us know a lot about the Apostle Paul. Others of us don't know much. And so just a quick refresher course on, on the Apostle Paul. Again, I mentioned that he has written or had written many of the letters of the New Testament, became one of the, one of the, the greatest leaders in the early church. And Fatima, if you want to put that picture up there. We learn much about Paul's life from the book of Acts and these other letters that he wrote in the New Testament. We know that he was originally from, from Tarsus, that his name was originally not Paul, but Saul. Saul of Tarsus. That he was, he was, uh, he was trained and educated at the feet of Gamaliel, a highly respected rabbi in Jerusalem. That, that Paul in his life, he joined the Pharisees, a, a highly devout, strict Jewish movement, and he became known for vigorously defending the, the, the Jewish traditions. And, in, and, and as a result of that, became also famous or infamous in the Christian history for his, his persecution of the early Christian church. And uh, we read in the book of Acts, chapter 7 and 8, how Stephen was being, uh, sharing his testimony and being uh, originally the first mar Christian martyr. And Paul stood there watching and giving approval as that took place. And, and how Paul then, it says, as he moves in, as Acts moves into chapter 8, he went from house to house, dragging men and women from their homes, Christian believers, and putting them into prison. And and uh, he was known for being one of the most staunch defenders of the Jewish tradition, especially as it pertained to 
opposing the Christian way. And, and, and we learn, though, soon after this, that on the way to Damascus, where he was going to arrest more Christians and, uh, and, and cause problems for those who belong to the way that Paul had a vision of Jesus. And this picture recounts part of that. A vision of the risen Jesus. Jesus had been crucified and resurrected and ascended at this point, but the, the resurrected and even ascended Jesus now appearing to Paul in a, in a vision that would change Paul's life forever. I mean, you just get a little taste. If you were a part of that vision, your life might have been changed forever as well. And Paul's transformed, and his life takes a, a, a complete turn. And he goes from being one of the greatest persecutors of the Christian movement to being one of the greatest missionaries that the Christian movement has ever known for the cause and purposes of Jesus Christ. In Paul's case, uh, the grace of God revealed to him in Jesus came not only in the form of forgiveness, and you can take that down, down, Fatima, thank you, for all the horrible things that he had done, some that he kind of refers to in this passage, uh, and, and the things that he had done not only against Jesus, but the church and his ignorance and belief, but it also came this this revelation of God to him and Jesus, it also came in the form of insight and instruction. For not only was Paul forgiven of his past, but he was set free for a new, a new future. He was l- literally blinded in that, in that vision and sent to another man who helped to restore his sight and give him instruction for what his new life was to look like. And Paul would say that his eyes, his spiritual blind eyes had been opened as well to see what God had in store for him. He's quite a guy, this Paul. And in the verses that we've read today, and if you have your Bible, you can still kind of keep them open and kind of look back to them. Because what we see here is that Paul very much was, was aware of what had happened to him. <laughs> very much was in tune with who he had been and all that God had done to bring restoration and, and fullness to his life. He was very much aware that, his, that God's grace in his life had meant not only a fresh start, sins forgiven, but, but a new call. Not necessarily a, a conversion, but, but a new calling in his life. A new understanding of who he was in God. A new chance to live for God in a in a fresh and powerful way. He, uh, he never ceased to be amazed. We can see it right from the start of the passage you read. I thank Christ Jesus our Lord. He never, Paul had this, this sense of awe that stayed with him throughout his life. Even to these moments of writing this letter to Timothy. This sense of awe and amazement at what Jesus had done this passage that starts in gratitude, and if you notice, it ends in praise, in his testimony. It's his testimony to all the ways that God had demonstrated his grace and his mercy in his, in his life. It was, it was amazing grace, not just that he'd heard about, but that he'd experienced. God had transformed Paul's life, and he couldn't help but but speak of it. And, and right there at the heart of it, 
again, if you have your Bible open, right at the critical center of his testimony, there's this, there's this saying right there in verse 15, and I think you can put the next screen up, Fatima. Right there at verse 15, he says this, there's this trustworthy saying. And there's lots of discussion about what this trustworthy saying was. And actually, he says this about five times total in the pastoral epistles. Paul refers back to a trustworthy saying. And it appears that, 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 these, were, that these were formulas or statements that the early church had developed, perhaps as part of a creed or a hymn, or perhaps as part of a, a poem that the early church had, had written and held onto. But Paul was referring back to them and would refer back to them several times in these letters to make sure that, that, that what he was saying was not just something he said, but something that the church had believed and held onto from its earliest days. These were the, core, these were the foundational statements and truths that Paul wanted the readers and the listeners and Timothy himself to, to hear. And so he, he leads up, here is a trustworthy saying. In other words, listen up. And then he simply leads, though, with those words that are written here for us on this screen. Verse 15, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. This is a Let's say it together, can't we? Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. You know, I read that this week and I thought, you know, every once in a while, you, you come across, even when you're preaching the lectionary passages, you come across a, a portion of Scripture that is just like, well, there it is. There, I, didn't, I didn't have to work very hard for that one. I didn't have to mine any commentaries or, or dig through any, you know, old class notes to, to, to come across a truth that, that should grip us all at our core and be that which we stand upon as foundational to who we understand ourselves to be as followers of Jesus. If you're not a follower of Jesus this morning, if you're not quite sure what that means, then what a great morning you landed here at Coast Community Church. Because you have the opportunity this morning to, to hear this foundational truth. What is it all about? Why does this church gather? Why are we here? <laughs> Why am I a pastor? Why are you followers of Jesus? Why are we committing ourselves to this pursuit of Christ? Because there's a trustworthy saying, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. This is the heart. This is the foundation. This is the incarnation. He came into the world. God became human. This is the, 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 the crucifixion. He, he saved sinners. He died so that we might be forgiven. This is the resurrection, the exaltation that we might know this full and free salvation. This is the essence of what it means to be, if you're wondering this morning, if you count yourself as a follower of Jesus this morning, but you're maybe not completely clear, maybe you just kind of raised in a Christian home, or you're an American, so you figured you should be a Christian, or whatever, the, maybe you're just not quite sure, well, 
you can know you're a, you're a believer today as because of the fact that Christ Jesus came to save you. And if you're an unbeliever today, it, not because you have rejected God or because you intentionally pushed Him away, but just because maybe you've just never come to a place of, of receiving His forgiveness and His salvation, you can know that's what He came to do. And, and I want to just talk to us for a few moments this morning about what it means that Christ came to save sinners. Because I think that there's some very perhaps very basic to some of us, but some very fundamental ways that we need to think about this and that Paul highlights for us in this passage that will help us as we think about our own salvation and the salvation of others in the world. My hope really is that at the end of the message today, again, that if if you've never known what it is to, to truly be saved by this Christ Jesus who came into the world to do just that, then, then you would be one step closer to thinking about that and perhaps even make that decision today. And again, if you have been saved, at least your understanding of that, that you would have a deeper understanding of just what it was that Christ Jesus came to do in your heart and life through that work. Paul offers himself again as an example just what it means to be saved this is my life, he says. Look, look, at, look at me. This is what it means to be saved. In the face of his ignorance and his belief, his unbelief, he says that God had met him with generosity. God had met him with grace. He hadn't tossed him aside. You need to hear that this morning. That's not God's intention. But that he instead had filled him with his faith and love, the faith and love that comes from Jesus. He was made new. And everyone needs to hear this message. And Paul wants to share, first of all, there's some things that, that Christ Jesus came to save him from. Jesus saves us from. And I just want to think about this with you for a few moments. He, he saves us, first of all, from our sin. That's very clear here from Paul. Um, Paul describes his former life negatively in at least three ways. He was insolent, he, violent, he was a blasphemer, he was a persecutor of the church. These all match what he had said about himself or what, we had, what Luke had written about him in the book of Acts. He was out to destroy the church. He was out to, 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 to ruin the lives of those who had committed themselves to the way of Jesus. And yet, in spite of rejecting Christ in these ways, Christ had not rejected him. And his life becomes an illustration of what happens when the old way of life is crucified and a person in Christ Jesus becomes a new creation. Jesus came to forgive Paul and he comes to forgive us from, our, from the sins that we have committed. And then this morning, some of us know just very personally, very deeply, the the path of disobedience, the path of self-centeredness, the path of just being turned in on our own pursuits. And what God would say to us in Jesus and what he said to Paul is that you can be forgiven. Your, your slate can be wiped clean. And it's one of the most, um, one of the most amazing and at the same time regular kind of things that we have gotten used to. 
And I would just encourage us all again this morning to consider that our past has been or can be wiped clean. Our sinful disobedience, our tendency towards self-centeredness, our mercilessness can be met with the mercy of God. Paul claimed that he was the worst of all. And some of us might say, well, I'm right there with you. Others of us would say, well, yeah, I didn't do anything like you did, Paul. But the reality is that the Bible reminds us that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Whether we persecuted the church or we've been raised in the church, we all find ourselves in a position of great need for the forgiveness of God. And that's just what Jesus offers, just what Paul experienced. Paul also said that Jesus had come to save him from his, from his past, not only from his from his sins, but from the hurt of his past. And, and I don't know about you, but I can just imagine, if you just want to, for a moment, get in Paul's shoes. And, and as he experienced that encounter with the risen Jesus, and as he went to Ananias and began to learn about who Jesus really was, and was confronted by this Jesus who invited him to follow after him, and would learn more about that. I can only imagine the thoughts that, that, that filled Paul's mine. And, and he could be forgiven of his sins in a moment. But I can only imagine the hurt and the pain that remained in Paul's mind as he thought about all that he had done to these brothers and sisters, that he, these people that he now called brothers and sisters. All the, all the anguish, all the shame, all the regret all the brokenness inside of what he had done and who he had been to that moment in life. And I know that it's one thing, I, I, I believe this, I feel like I've experienced this in my own life, and I know this to be true for us. It's one thing for us to experience the forgiveness of our sins, but to, but to, but to truly be saved from, from, from a past that can haunt us and that can take up space within us. And to, to come to this place believing that while we may not ever fully move forward from the memories of our past, and while we, without a doubt, will have to suffer some of the consequences, perhaps, for the choices of our past, but to believe that in Jesus, this one who came to save sinners, we can, we can be freed from the grip of our past. And I just need to share with you this morning, I hope some people just need to be reminded or know for the first time today that your past, whatever it's been, disobedience, self-centeredness, your own pursuits, it, it doesn't have to dominate your present. And it doesn't have to destine your future. I just know as we think about the impact of trauma, and Kyla tells me these sorts of things all the time from her work with kids and students, the impact of trauma on our lives. And I'm speaking to a, a large number of people here today who have experienced incredible trauma in, in your lives of one kind or another. I won't even begin to, to name it other than to say you've, you've been there. And, and, and you, at some level, experience the effects of that perhaps even on a daily basis if not with some 
regularity. And I believe that this trustworthy saying has a lot to say to us who may find ourselves in that position. Is it going to help us to just completely leave that behind us and not have that impact us at some level? Maybe not. But is the Jesus who came to save sinners able to, to help us to face that trauma and face that past and to move forward in a new way, knowing that He is with us and is strengthening us and is giving us the ability to to deal with that as he would have us to, I believe is just an incredible message of hope for us. We came to save sinners from our past hurt. It doesn't have to dominate your present. It doesn't have to destine your future. But he also knew this last part for this aspect, that Jesus had come to save him not only from his sin and the hurt of his past, but from the from the from the potential of the future, the, the problems that were still out before him. And, and I, I think some of us maybe who were raised and maybe we never persecuted the church or dragged Christians out of their homes or stood by as men were made martyrs. We, we kind of wonder if we have, you know, what it is that Jesus saved us from. But I believe that Paul was very clear in this reality that this Christ who came to save sinners had saved him from the future as well, of what it is that he may have become. We all know that just being off a few degrees in our direction can lead us to a place where, where we're, we're far off from the destination that we had intended. And, and when Jesus comes to save sinners, he comes to save us not only from what's happened, but from what could happen in the days to come. And for Paul, who knows? Who knows what his his career uh, may have blossomed into. Who knows what horror stories could have been written about Saul of Tarsus and his engagement with the Christian church. Who knows what terror he could have brought upon even at a deeper level. King Nero, Saul of Tarsus, these kinds of connections may have been made. And yet Paul declares very clearly, been saved from that. I've been saved from that. When I was, we were coming home from Idaho uh, not long ago, we, we were on vacation up there in the mountains and we were coming back and we were leaving early. We were going to try to drive the 19 hours in one day. And so we were leaving early and we wanted to get a good start and, uh, you know, just make good time right from the beginning and, and make our way down those thousand miles, thousand miles, friends. And we were, okay, no problem. We got all packed up. 4.30, wake up, 5 a.m., which is 4 a.m. here. We'll be, going, we'll be getting back around 10. It should be good. Uh, not a problem. And so we got out onto the road just outside of the town in which our cabin is, and we were suddenly consumed by a fog that we could not see farther than just it felt like a few feet in front of the car. And all the great anticipation and aspiration of getting a good start and getting off in a good way and making great time and flying through those early morning hours when there isn't as much traffic and getting on down the road was just, just came to a screeching, literally, a screeching halt <laughs> as 
Our kids were sleeping in the back, but Kyla stared intently at the... And then the other reality of the place where we lived is that, or where we were coming from, is that not only was there fog, but, but just beyond every 10 feet of fog could be a large deer right in the middle of the road. So I didn't just have to know where the road was. I had to know if there was a deer in the middle of it. So from 55, yeah, sure. From 55, our speed was cut back to about 15 or 20. And that one hour that was supposed to take one hour stretch, 45 minutes to one hour to get us to the the curves of the hill took us about an hour and a half, two hours even, as we made our way through that. As I was thinking about this sin that we're saved from, it, it made me think of that experience because so many of us have this great anticipation of getting out into life and then we're just, we're just stuck by our sin, our disobedience, our self-centeredness, our, our, our pursuit of our own desires. And, and it's just like a fog that sets in on our lives. And we're, and we're just slowed way down from becoming all that God would have us to be. All the anticipation, the hopes of making progress and moving forward into all that God would have us just come to a, a screeching halt by our sinfulness. And, our, and sometimes it's our past. And sometimes maybe it's even the anticipation of our future. And we're just kind of, I don't know, to, to live in a, in a life of sin. It's just to live in this, in this fog. And, and this trustworthy saying reminds us that if you're in that fog this morning, and maybe you're not even sure. I don't feel like I've been particularly disobedient or I don't feel like I've been self-centered, but, but maybe there's just some aspect of you that you're not even aware of. Maybe it's, as, as Paul wrote, his ignorance and unbelief. Some of us just sometimes find ourselves in that. If we find ourselves in this fog, maybe it's a good time. Whether you're a, a person who is, is coming to faith or who has been follower of Jesus for many years, it might be a good time just to say, Christ Jesus, you came to save me from this fog. Jesus, I know that you don't want me to live in this funk, in this fog, in this stuck spot where I'm, I'm, I'm hindered and hampered from becoming all that you've called me to be. I know that you don't want this sin to so easily entangle me and keep me from running the race that you would have me to run. So Jesus... Save me from it. Save me from it. And I would just encourage us to not allow the sin to remain in our past hurts, to remain in our fear or anticipation of what the future may hold, to remain locked in and keeping us from who God would have us to be. Get out of the fog by the grace of God this morning. But there's another part to this that I'll hit on as quick as I can, and it's just this idea that Jesus, Christ Jesus came to the world to save sinners not only from something, but, but I believe Paul's emphasis really in this passage, and when he spends more time, is to, is to talk to us about saving us, to save sinners for something. And I just don't, I, I, I know that we think about this, but I don't know if we think about it enough. So when, when you think about Christ saving sinners... From now on, I want you to think at least in equal parts. He saves us from these things and he saves us for these things. Or in your 
view. He saves us from these things and for these things. Moving forward into the future. Jesus saves us for these things. And the first would just be this idea that He saves us for His work in the world. For God's work in the world. Verse 12, uh, because of Christ's grace, Paul has been appointed to his service. In other places, Paul has, has uh, been referred to or spoken of trophies of God's grace. But I thought about it. I, I have a lot of trophies from when I was a kid, and some of you have trophies on your wall. What do trophies do? They just collect dust, right? That's not really what Paul was. Paul was not a trophy of God's grace, not just a display case of God's grace. He was an instrument of God's grace. He was transformed by God's grace. He was made new by God's grace. So he was sent forward by God's grace, appointed to do the work of God in the world. You have been saved for the purposes of God. And I don't care, it doesn't matter what kind of occupation you have, what your career is. It doesn't matter what kind of family you're a part of, what school you go to, what neighborhood you live in. Wherever the context is that you have been placed, that is the context in which you were invited to carry out the work of God. God's redemptive, His redeeming, His making new and making free and loving work in the world. We're invited to be partners, to be participants with God in His redeeming and loving mission to the world. That means where we work. That means where we live. That means where we go to school. We're ambassadors of the love of Jesus. That, as we said last week, we change the atmosphere by the very presence of Christ in our lives in the world in which we live. That we go to do work of redemption and love in in acts of justice and acts of mercy, that we stand up for the oppressed, that we, that we speak up for the underrepresented, that we stand in solidarity with the, with the hurting and with those who are pushed aside. We have, we have eyes that are opened to see where it is that God would be at work in the world, and we put ourselves there. <laughs> We become the hands and feet of Jesus. See, you weren't just saved to be a trophy. I mean, you're good-looking people, don't get me wrong. And you're glittery and shiny and strong and all these things, but you weren't just saved so we could, you know, have people look at us. We were saved to be participants in the work of God in the world he also recognizes that Jesus came to save him for the purpose of, of being an example. He speaks of that really clearly there in, the, in these passages, um, or in, the, in these verses, uh, right there at verse 16, I believe it is. But God had mercy on me so that Christ Jesus could use me as a prime example of his great patience with even the worst sinners, then others will realize that they too can believe in Him and receive eternal life. He comes right out and says that Jesus saved Him and He saves us in order that we might be a prime example of His grace and mercy in the world. That I thought about it like this, that Jesus, it wasn't just like an afterthought. 
It wasn't like, I'm going to save Paul from his sin. Oh, now that I saved him from his sin, I should involve him in the work of my mission in the world. Oh, that's a good idea. Oh, what about this one? Now that I involved him in my work of mission in the world, I should actually make him an example for the people in the world that would see him so that they might become followers as well. It didn't happen like that according to Paul. It happened all in one fell swoop. It was like, yes, I'm saving you for this, from this, for this, for that. And part of that was to be an example. It was very intentional on God's part. Very, and it is very intentional on God's part for you. It's not a question if you're a follower of Jesus. If you've been saved, it's not a question of if you'll be an example to the world around you of the goodness and mercy and love and grace of God. It's a question of when. Because for Jesus, the, the deal is already settled. For Jesus, it's a done deal. Those who I save from their sin are saved for the purpose of being an example in the world. So we think again about what it looks like and what it means in the places where we work and the places where we live, the schools that we go to, the families that we're a part of. And, and Paul wants to be very clear here. It's not, he's, God isn't using him to be an example of how great Paul is. We, we got to be very, very careful, friends, that we don't somehow, somehow think that, that we are, the, the, the example that we're putting forward is, is to how good we are, to how far we've come in this life. The, the example that we're portraying is, is that of how great God is and what He has done, what His mercy is like. May our lives be those that point to, to God. May how great it would be that when we leave the room, people would say of us, something different about that person. And, and if they're familiar at all with the things of God, and even if they're not, that they might even say more than just that they're something different about that person, but, but that person is kind. That person is generous. And that person is gentle. And it doesn't take, friends, a whole lot more than that sometimes for the Holy Spirit to take those thoughts and begin to grow them in the minds and hearts of people to the point where they say, oh, and I know that person is a follower of Jesus. That must be a little bit about what her God is like. What his God is like. What if when we left the room, people were to, have a sense that they've been around someone who has who's been changed by God. What a, what a wonderful challenge and invitation. Um, the last thing, though, is this. Paul demonstrates that, that uh, he, he doesn't really, he speaks about this, but he more so just demonstrates it, that, that Jesus saves us for a life of worship. He, he, he saves us for uh, mission. He saves us to be example, but he saves us to be people who are full of worship for him, both in the times when we come together to sing and to pray and to listen to his word, but also in the lives that we lead. And he closes off this portion of his writing with what's become a, a great prayer blessing in the scriptures. To the king, eternal, immortal, 
invisible, the only God, be the honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. God's the King forever and ever. God's the, He's not subject to decay. He's not subject to death. He's the Holy One who does not change forever. A lot of folks have been asking me how we're doing, and forgive me if I've already had this personal conversation with you, but a lot of folks have been asking me and Kyla how we're doing since we you know, our, sent our daughter off for college, and uh, as far as we know, she's doing fine. Um, but, you know, that's the first thing people want to know is, and it kind of usually just typically like, goes like this, how's Katie doing? Fine. And how are you? <laughs> and, uh, and, uh, and as some of you who maybe work with Katie in childcare or, you know, see her on a regular basis, some of you, I'm sure, can even feel, and for others of you who's ha- who've had children or other family members kind of leave uh, from your immediate presence, uh, it's been a little bit difficult. It's been a little bit hard. And there's kind of a little bit of a void and a, kind of an empty space or where her kind of laughter should chime in or a question or this, it's just not there. And so it's, it's kind of interesting. But... Um, about three weeks before uh, Katie left, I was reading a book that was talking about young adults in particular and talking about the importance of differentiation. And it just simply means just becoming different from their parents. And it was, it was as if this was just a sort of a little gift of God to me, a gift of God's grace to say, this is ultimately, you know, a, a good thing. And... And I've been thinking about that because I got to admit, like when we got home from dropping her off, I sat in my room and I thought, what's so good about this? Are we, is this a law or something that we have to do this? Are we, you know, are we in violation if she stays at home? No. But, but it, in our particular case and in Katie's particular case, it just seemed important that for her to differentiate, to move forward, would be a, a good thing. And, and what I ultimately have come to the realization is that, as all parents know and, and hope, is that we, we raised her for this moment. We didn't raise her so she could, you know, Move in forever. <laughs> we raised her, and that's okay if she wants to come back. I'll welcome her forever. But we didn't raise her to be in here. We raised her to, to, to discover and to become. And, and I just, again, this Christ Jesus who came to save sinners didn't do it so he could put you on a trophy case. There they are. Look how pretty they are. They all sit so quietly for such a long time. And no, go, go. He, he raised you. He saved you, this Jesus, for mission, for the purposes of being an example in the world. He saved you so that you might worship him 
When Kristen tells you to put a smile on your face, she's doing so because that's what he saved you for. That's what he saved us for. And, and, and maybe that doesn't always translate to our face or translate to our bodies, but more and more, maybe it can. And, and that our expression as we gather in worship and our expression as we go into our workplace and as we go into our, our home life, maybe one where we say, God, I'm doing all of this for your glory and for your honor because you saved me for this very purpose. Again, if, uh, if you're a, if you've one who's been saved, who has been saved, live it. Forget what's behind, move forward into all that God has for you. If you're not sure about where you are in terms of a saving relationship with Jesus, but today, this kind of sounds pretty good. I can get rid of that, I can move forward there, then why not make today the day? Worship team, come on up here. Let's pray. Let's stand together, can we? Lord, thank you so much for your grace and for your mercy. Thank you that this is a trustworthy saying. That we can, can stake our lives on it, God. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. May we live into that truth. May we live into that hope. May those of us who've experienced the saving grace of Jesus realize again today all that that means. This isn't, this isn't just something to throw around. May we realize all that that mean, means both from and for Thank you for saving us, Jesus. And for those who may be on the fence this morning or just unknown, maybe unaware, not, not having rejected you, God, but, but not having ever personally and fully stepped across a line of putting their faith in you and allowing you to save them from and for. May today be a moment like that for some maybe even just for one here this morning. Thank you for saving us, Jesus. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for your grace. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.